do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. If you are under the impression that the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament of the Bible viewed the world and cosmology exactly as you do today in 2024, I have a surprise for you. You're wrong, but that's okay. And if you're under the impression that because they viewed the cosmos differently, because they viewed the world differently, this somehow hurts our view of of inerrancy uh, if they're wrong about something. Well, that's not true either. And so we're going to see why this stuff is important. We're going to see how they viewed stars, how they viewed the world around them, including the earth and the solar system. And we're even going to see why Satan is called Lucifer. You've, you've probably looked through your Bible or concordance and, and said, why is he called Lucifer? I don't see that anywhere in here, but we're going to get to that too as a bonus. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to say our interview with Jen Nitza that some of you are waiting for, that's moved to next week. Uh, she had some kind of sickness or a, a terrible migraine or something like that. So pray for her. Again, she's a former psychic. She used to hold a psychic practice. And now uh, she is a Christian believer. She is a follower of Jesus. Christ, who has her own podcast and everything. But we're going to have an actual former psychic on next week, so I can't wait for that. Uh, And also, for those of you anywhere near the Tampa Bay area, uh, we're going to be doing an event tomorrow night, Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Mosaic Church in Newport Ritchie. There's going to be a Q&A panel. You can come with any questions you have. Uh, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to be on the panel. Uh, Matthew Middleberg, I think, is going to be on the panel. My buddy Chris Gates, it's actually his church. He's been on the podcast a few times, uh, so you've probably heard him if you've been listening for a while. But that's at Mosaic Church in Newport Ritchie. That's tomorrow, Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. Uh, what is it? February 29th. It's weird having a February 29th. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Uh, Usually that doesn't exist in my mind, but it exists tomorrow and it's going to be a great February 29th. So come check that out. Uh, Don't forget to hit follow if you haven't done that yet so that you don't miss any new content. But with all that being said, we have a lot to cover today. Um, So let's get started. Uh, Let's let's begin with a big picture of how Israel sort of viewed um, geography how they viewed cosmology, how they viewed the world that they lived in, in a physical and a metaphysical sense. So I'm going to read you an excerpt here in just a couple minutes uh, from John Walton. It's from the book Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. And I wanted to clarify up front, when you're reading scholarly research, you're going to come across stuff you disagree with all the time, especially in regard to conclusions. So I can turn around and look at all these different scholarly books on my bookshelf and I can say, okay, this one and this one and this one, that great data, great research, but I don't agree with all the conclusions. In regard to this one, there's going to be conclusions you may not agree with. For example, John Walton holds the view um, that Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narrative, is about functional creation rather than actual substance being brought into uh, existence. And so I don't think I don't I don't hold that view. Uh, I think there's something to it. I think it's interesting, and I want to do more research. But you don't have to agree with all of the, uh, the conclusions of a scholar to gain something from their research. He does incredible research. Uh, he does a lot of incredible work, especially in the area of ancient Near, Near Eastern culture uh, and thought and how it impacts scripture. 
So I would read I would read this book if you haven't. There's a lot of good material on ancient Near Eastern culture, but if we want to understand how the Israelites saw the world, we can't look at it from 2024. Okay, we can't look at it from our modern standpoint, our our modern viewpoint. We have to try to get into the head of ancient Israelites if we want to understood or if we want to understand why what they understood. If we want to know what they're actually writing. Um, if we want to believe what God intends to communicate to us. And it seems undeniable to me that you're going to come across things in the Old Testament as far uh, as how the Israelites viewed the earth and how they viewed the world around them, that you're going to say, well, that's not true. Uh, and what we want to do is, is we have this tendency to read what we know back into the text, to read modern scientific findings back into the text. Uh, but I, I, I think this is unwise. I think it hurts the actual context. And I think what we're doing is we're robbing scripture of, of the wonderful and unique way that God used uh, to have people, actual people, communicate. Not that he put their his, his hand on their brain and just zapped something into their head, but they actually communicated from what they know, and he was able to craft all of Scripture together, all 66 books, never doing it without using a person. And so that's incredible to me. We'll touch on that again a little bit later. Um, but let's start with the big picture. I'm going to read you an excerpt uh, from from John Walton's book, and he's going to describe how the ancient Near East viewed the world and how the Israelites seemed to view the world the same way. And then we're going to get into uh, how they view the stars, especially in regard to divinity and so on. So it's going to be very interesting, very um, very important too for a lot of things. But this is going to be from chapter seven in the book I just mentioned, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. Chapter seven's on cosmic geography. And he starts the chapter by describing the way we see the world today, how we see the cosmos is so vast and so huge um, that it gives us the impression that we're small, that we're just a speck, as Richard Dawkins and others have pointed out. We're just one little speck in the whole cosmos. It doesn't mean anything. And, and this is kind of the view we have of ourselves. And so that impacts the way that we see ourselves and we see society in the world. Well, let's look at the way the ancient Israelites saw the cosmos and how that impacts them in the way they see the world and how God crafts this together so uniquely. So this is on page 166. He picks up um, right after he talks about, as I mentioned, the way we see the world affecting the way we see ourselves and culture and society. He says, in the ancient world, they also had a cosmic geography that was just as intrinsic to their thinking, just as fundamental to their worldview, just as influential in every aspect of their lives, and just as true in their minds. And it differs from ours at every point. If we aspire to understand the culture and literature of the ancient world, whether Canaanite, Babylonian, Egyptian, or Israelite, it is therefore essential that we understand their cosmic geography. Despite variations from one ancient Near Eastern culture to another, there are certain elements that characterize all of them. What kept the sky suspended above the earth and held back the heavenly waters? What kept the sea from overwhelming the land? What prevented the earth from sinking into the cosmic waters? These were the questions people asked in the ancient world, and the answers they arrived at are embodied in the cosmic geography. Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Canaanites, Hittites, and Israelites all thought of the cosmos in terms of tears. The earth was in the middle with the heavens above, 
So try to, this is me talking, by the way, not John Walton now. Try to picture this. Um, I wish I could attach a, a photo below, but I can't. But try to picture what he's describing here because it, it shows you what they would have envisioned um, the world and, and the earth is, is looking like. So he says, in general, um, people believe that there was a single continent that was disc-shaped. This continent had high mountains at the edges that held up the sky, which they thought was somewhat solid, whether it was envisioned as a tent or a more substantial uh, dome. Let's pause here again uh, before we continue. So when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, there's a Hebrew word used for the uh, for the heavens. It's the word rakia. And the word rakia is, in, in, according to the research I've seen from a number of scholars, it undoubtedly refers to a solid dome or a solid tent-like structure. It isn't referring to just some vast expanse. You'll see in the NIV, I believe, and a couple other translations, they'll translate that word expanse. Um, but if you look at the King James, for example, I believe the NASB, you'll see the term firmament. Well, what term do you recognize in, in the term firmament? Firm. Okay, because they believed that the sky was firm. They believed that there was a dome around the earth. Um, there, there's, there's this flat disk, the water surrounding it. And then underneath the water, you have Sheol, and then you have the deep. But up above, um, you have this dome, and there's water above the dome as well. And then, of course, you have all the stars and uh, planets and so on and so forth. Well, that term rakia is undoubtedly describing a solid dome or tent-like structure. So this is how they viewed the earth. There are many scholars who have recognized this, uh, more traditional scholars, and, and they'll say something like, well, there was a dome, uh, but then the first time it rained, the dome was, was diminished and the waters came down because they weren't held up anymore and so on and so forth. There'll, there'll be these different ways to kind of um, to try to explain why that term is used in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, or, or in Genesis 1. But the problem is you see that term rakia used elsewhere in Scripture after the flood. So that poses a significant issue for suggesting that there was a dome and that the dome went away. It seems to make a lot more sense that the Israelites who were surrounded by these other cultures, who were in many ways immersed in the thinking of these other cultures because it was the time and the location they lived in, that they actually did think that this was a structure of the earth. And so God used what they knew to communicate what he wanted to communicate about he, uh, God, Yahweh, the Most High, being the creator of everything and bringing everything into existence. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't hold the view that in Genesis 1 or, or, one or 2, um, that God is just bringing things into function or uh, from chaos to order. We'll get into that another day because I do agree with some of it. You, even, even if you do agree with that, you still have passages elsewhere, like in Colossians 1, that makes it clear that Christ created everything that exists. There's nothing that, uh, that exists apart from, from him. He brought everything into creation. So let's continue with where we were reading. Right after the solid dome, um, and of course, this next line is going to be very significant for what we're going to sort of uh, extrapolate on today. So he says, the heavens where deity, where deity dwelt were above the sky, and the netherworld was beneath the earth. In some of the Mesopotamian literature, the heavens were understood to be made up of three superimposed disks with pavements of various materials. What they observed led them to conclude that the sun and the moon moved in roughly the same spheres and in similar ways. The sun moved through the sky during the day and then moved during the night into the netherworld where it traversed under the earth to its place of rising for the next day. The stars were engraved on the sky and moved in tracks through their ordained stations. 
flowing all around this cosmos were the cosmic waters, which were held back by the sky and on which the earth floated, though they conceived of the earth as supported on pillars. Now let's pause one more time before we just read this last little excerpt here. Um, there are a couple things to point out. Number one, so this idea of um, the deity or, or divine beings dwelling in the sky, that's going to be most of our focus today. But you also have this idea of the netherworld being beneath the earth, Sheol, the place of the dead, hell. Um, and there are many people who are starting to dig into this stuff now that we have so much good literature on it. And even the most traditional fundamental people are now saying that, uh, not all, I don't want to characterize everybody, okay, but there are a number of them now saying, you'll even see them on popular shows, um, things like, yeah, I believe that hell is below the earth, that, that it's actually inside the earth. And it's because, I think, they're trying to be consistent with their view of inerrancy, uh, but they're recognizing that the Bible does clearly state these things. And we can't just write them off as metaphor. We can't just write them off as an analogy to make ourselves more comfortable. We have to interpret the text, how it should be interpreted in its direct context, in its surrounding culture, in the language and the grammar used, in the purpose it's being used. We can't just write it off and say anytime we don't like something, it's a metaphor. This is why people don't look at us Christians as, as seeing the Bible as objective, as seeing it as something that can be defended no matter what. Um, if we look at it objective, there's nothing we can't take at face value and be confident about. Even if the Israelites had something wrong, God still used them where they were in their uh, current thinking of the world, and he still used them to communicate his point that is ultimately made perfectly. It's not only unobjective and un unrealistic to suggest that the Israelites should have had back then the knowledge of, uh, of the universe that we have today, whether we're right or wrong. Okay, it's, it's not only unrealistic, but it's also unfair to suggest that they should know those things, uh, especially like we're going to see in this last part. This is how people viewed the, the world for a very, very long time until fairly recently in history. To suggest that they just had this secret knowledge um, is, I think it does a disservice to Christianity. I think it does a disservice to the Bible. And it certainly takes away from us understanding it in its original context. So let's continue. Precipitation originated from waters held back by the sky and fell to the earth through openings in the sky. Similar views of the structure of the cosmos uh, were common throughout the ancient world and persisted in popular perception until the Copernican Revolution and the Enlightenment. Okay, so that's a very long time. These views persisted until what, 500 years ago or so? These were not mathematically deduced realities, but the reality of how things looked to them. The language of the Old Testament reflects this view and no text in the Bible seeks to correct or refute it. So that last line is very important. Not only does the Old Testament seem to reflect this view of the world, but it also doesn't seek to correct or refute it. And it's important to recognize this because the Bible is not a science book, number one. Okay, the, the intention of Genesis, the intention of other creation narratives we see in the Bible, like in Psalm 74, these are not intended to be science textbook passages. They're not intended to teach you something about the scientific method. And when we try to interpret the Bible as though it's trying to teach us about the scientific method, when that clearly, A, is not its purpose, and B, they had a very supernatural and metaphysical view of the world 
it, it just does the Bible a disservice because it's not it's it's not what's being communicated. And what we're doing is we're taking it out of its context and we're putting it somewhere else where it's just not going to make any sense. Um, that's that is not what God is intending to do. So now that we kind of have an idea of how they viewed uh, the earth and the world and cosmology, we can start to get into how the Hebrews viewed the stars. Um, and what I'm contending for, and what I think has been made abundantly clear to me, uh, is that the Israelites viewed the stars as divine beings, as the heavenly host, as angelic beings, spiritual beings. So they actually believe that the stars were living spiritual beings. And I'm going to show you some places where I think it's undeniable in Scripture. Uh, but let's start by at least looking at some places where uh, where angels are referred to as stars. I mean, that, that much is undeniable. Anybody would agree with that. They might try to say they're metaphors or some kind of analogy. But regardless, everybody would agree angels are called stars in Scripture. It's undeniable. For example, let's look at Job 38.7. In Job 38, 7, it says, On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, or angels in the Septuagint, shouted for joy. So you have this, um, the term sons of God here, B'nai Elohim, or B'nai Ha Elohim. It's the same term we see in Genesis 6. We see it uh, used a number of times throughout the Old Testament and Psalms. And so this term is used to describe spiritual beings, uh, Elohim. And so we have this sons of God, or as the Septuagint translates it, angels shouting for joy at the time of creation. Now, look how it's used interchangeably with the sentence before. While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So you have here uh, stars referred to as angels or referred to as the sons of God. Now, again, at this point, you might be saying, well, I think that's just a metaphor. Um, I don't think it's anything more than that. Okay, that's going to become, I, I think, undeniable later that it's not a metaphor. But for now, fine. But we can at least see that they're referred to as stars. Now, let's go to Daniel 8. We'll just look at a handful of these so the point is made here. Uh, Daniel 8, this is a vision that Daniel's having. We go to verse 9 and 10. It says, Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it grew some of the starry host, it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. So we see starry host, host of heavens. This is a term for God's uh, angels, his angel armies. And so we see it used uh, clearly here. Now, again, you're, you can say, well, this is just a metaphor. It's a dream he's having. Uh, it's an illusion. Fair enough. That's fine. I'm just showing you that they did use these terms interchangeably before we get to the passages that are going to be really significant. Um, now, let's look at another one. We can go to, uh, let's pull up Nehemiah 9.6. So I'm going to go to Nehemiah 9.6. Um and we'll see, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So again, we see that term, uh, starry hosts, or heavenly hosts, the ones that dwell in the heavens. Now let's look at one more uh, before we get to our main point here. This is from 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, verse 16. In the NIV, 
We say they forsook, forsook all the commandments of their Lord and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bow, they bow down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. So you have them here bowing down to these starry hosts or as we see in ESV, uh, bowing down and worshiping all the host of heaven. So we see the language used uh, a number of times here. Now that we've established that, let's start looking at the passages um, that are very significant. We'll go to Deuteronomy 4 in just a moment here. Uh, but first, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, you may have heard Satan, the devil, referred to as Lucifer. And, and it's a, a fairly often that we hear that term. Well, in Isaiah 14, remember, if you go to the Old Testament outside of the fall in Genesis 3 in the garden, you have two very significant chapters about Satan. I don't believe Job is one of them. I think the, the Satan or the Satan or Ha-Satan in Job is not Satan. We'll do that in another episode. I've, I touched on it in the Satan series last year. Um, but Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are two very significant chapters in regard to uh, to who Satan is pre-fall and his fall anyway, pre-rebellion and post-rebellion. So in Isaiah 14, in regard to Lucifer, we see, how have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? So here's another, see, morning star. The morning star was the one that was the brightest. So how have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, uh, you who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And we see stars of God here. So twice again, we see stars referring to angelic beings. But this is where Lucifer comes from. So the term morning star in Latin is Lucifer. So that's why you don't see it in your Bible, but it is actually a biblical term. It's, it's a Latin term for morning star. So it is biblical. It just isn't a, a Hebrew pronunciation. Um, but I thought that was interesting when I I'd first learned that because when you hear something a lot and then all of a sudden you're like, where does that even come from? It's driving me crazy. That's where it comes from. Uh, so let's go over to Deuteronomy 4. This is a passage in a chapter that uh, really all of Deuteronomy is very significant to the divine council worldview. Uh, so in Deuteronomy 4, we're going to see actually... Um, let me see, in verse 19, we're going to see something very significant here in regard to our topic. This is one of the few passages that I think makes it undeniable that this is not a metaphor that they refer to them as stars. They actually believe they are stars. Um, so let's go to Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. Uh, he says, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven... You will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So remember, host of heaven is a term for angels, for spiritual beings. God's heavenly host, his, his angel armies, sometimes it's used to refer to them as. Um, but we see here, you see, don't raise your eyes to the heaven, okay, to the heavens when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So here it's undeniable. He's using heavenly host interchangeably with sun and moon and stars. Because just like the rest of ancient Near Eastern culture, the Israelites viewed the sun and the moon and the stars as heavenly beings. They saw them as the host of heaven, God's angels. And it's also very significant that in the last part of this verse 19, 
uh, we see things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Well, why is that significant? Because if you remember at Babel, we see a Romans one moment where the people are continually sinning against God, continually rebelling against him. And finally, God says, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to disinherit the nations and I'm going to hand them over to these lesser Elohim, these lesser spiritual beings. And we see that in Deuteronomy 32 uh, verses eight and nine, that when God divided mankind, he divided them according to the number of the sons of God. So we see at Babel, he, he, he divides them according to the number of these lesser Elohim, these sons of God. Of course, they don't judge justly. They judge unjustly and wickedly, and they end up being judged in Psalm 82 by God, which again is a very important divine counsel chapter. But the point that I'm making here is that you see him hand the people over the other nations except for Israel. Remember, in that same verse, Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, we see that Israel is the Lord's inheritance. They're the nation that he chose to create to bring the Messiah through, to redeem the world, and to draw those nations back to himself, which is why we see so much authority attributed to demons and to Satan in the New Testament and the Old, but especially in the New Testament. We see them referred to as powers and authorities. They're not just authoritative over nothing. (laughs) Okay, authority actually means something, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And so you have them handed over uh, these these sons of God over the nations. And so here in Deuteronomy um, in Deuteronomy chapter four in verse nineteen, we see that Israel is worshiping these quote unquote gods, uh, these these heavenly hosts that have been allotted to the other nations. They've been placed under these under these heavenly hosts as a punishment, but you haven't. And you better not go to these other nations and worship them. You better not go and get anything from them because I'm your God. I'm the one that you are to serve. And so that point is made very clear right here and throughout the Old Testament narrative. It's why we see that when Israel is worshiping these other quote unquote gods, they're not just worshiping a stick or a pole or a piece of metal uh, or a little idol that they made. They're actually, they're actually worshiping demons. They're worshiping corrupted sons of God, uh, as we see in Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17. But most significant uh, to our point here in, in Deuteronomy 4.19, we see this term heavenly host uh, or angels being used interchangeably with the stars Uh, in the moon, and so on. Now let's go to our next passage. This is going to be in Deuteronomy 17, same book. Uh, You'll learn that the Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is very significant to the Divine Council worldview, and it's actually often referred to as a Deuteronomy 32 worldview. But in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 and 3, uh, we see that if there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant, and listen to this, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, whether the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host or host of heaven, which I have forbidden. So here, again, we see undeniably he is using even the term gods. And remember, the term gods, Elohim, is a term used to refer to any um any kind of spiritual being, any being that lives in the spiritual realm. 
So the dead Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, because he comes back to life from the spiritual realm, is referred to as an Elohim. We have demons in Deuteronomy 32 referred to as Elohim. We have angels in Psalm 8 and and all over the place referred to as Elohim. And of course, we have God uh, referred to as Elohim. And so uh, Elohim is any kind of being who lives in the spiritual realm. Of course, God is the only one who isn't created, and he is El Elyon, the most high. He is the most high Elohim. Uh, So he is the only true God, the only self-sustaining being in the universe. But here again, uh, we see the same the same terms interchanged here even stronger this time. Not to go off and worshiping other gods, and it, and it says, and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, whether the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven. So the the uh, the stars or the sun and the moon is referred to again not only as the host of heaven but as gods that can be worshipped. So this is undeniable. The, the, the Israelites weren't worshiping nothing. They weren't just w- looking up and worshiping a light. I mean, that would be silly. They, they had a totally different view of the world, of the universe. And if you are looking at this objectively and instead of trying to explain everything away, I don't think there's any way you can arrive at a different conclusion. They very clearly viewed cosmology differently. And one of the big reasons, um, I don't think I read this excerpt, so let me read it real quick from... Uh, from John Walton's book that we read earlier. Uh, This is going to be on page 167. He says, beyond this physical description of the universe, it is important to realize that their cosmic geography was predominantly metaphysical and only secondarily physical or material. The role and manifestations of the gods in the cosmic geography was primary. So, So keep that in mind. Their view of the world was primarily metaphysical. It was beyond physical. They had a very supernatural view of the world, a very supernatural uh, view of what's going on in scripture and the culture around them. And and so did everybody in regard to the Bible until we get up to the time of Augustine and then we see it start to fade away, or at least around that time. But they primarily viewed the world metaphysically. Okay, the actual physical material world the substance, the physical substance of the world was secondary. First was the way they viewed it metaphysically and spiritually. Now let's read one more short excerpt before we go to our next passage here. Uh, It says in page 170, sun, moon, stars, and planets were all considered in the same category and were believed to occupy the same region, the air, since they could be seen beneath the sky. Mesopotamians viewed the stars as engraved on the underside of the sky, and assign them paths of movements, three tracks, the paths of Ehu and Lil and uh, Ie, with the heavens divided into 36 zones. Constellations were recognized and named, including the zodiacal constellations, uh, though the concept of the zodiac was a later development. So you see the same kind of thinking all over ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, This isn't unique to Israel, and there isn't anything about Israel in this regard that is unique or totally separate from the other cultures. They clearly viewed the world the same way. They didn't have the Hubble telescope. Okay, they, they didn't have what we have today. And we have to be careful with reading modern scientific findings back into scripture. Again, I've said this several times now, but in my view, it does a huge disservice to the Bible. And I think it is so unique um, that God actually used people where they were and with their knowledge to create 
the, the Bible and how amazing it is and how wonderful it is and how there's not a single truth proposition in the Bible that can fall short. It is entirely infallible. There's not a single point that God wanted to be, to be made that isn't made and won't be made through scripture. Okay, it, it will not fail. It will not fall flat. Um, and, and that is just amazing. And it's so much more amazing to think that he actually used people with their current knowledge. See, sometimes with our view of inspiration, um, we'll do this in another episode. I hold a providential view of inspiration. I actually believe that when Peter says that the the uh, authors were were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that was throughout their whole life. God providentially used them. He providentially put things in their path, and he used them to communicate these points. So, uh, God is primary in inspiration, but the authors are the ones actually living and writing it. And it's important to understand this because what we end up with otherwise is we end up with something like automatic writing, right? Which we're going to hear about next week. We end up with something like God just puts his hand on someone's head and he zaps this information into their head. He just blasts it into their head and they write it down like, like while their eyes are in the back of their head or something. That's not how we're supposed to view scripture. There's nothing in the Bible that would imply that. And another issue with that view of inspiration, uh, even though I don't, I don't think it's consciously intended to be dictation, the traditional view of inspiration really in many ways turns into dictation. And then what you have as a result is you have passages like we're reading now and people have to go and they have to read other things into them. They have to manipulate them to mean something different because it goes against their view of inspiration. Well, if you're a Protestant like I am, this is exactly what you don't like about the Catholic Church. But then you're going to do the same thing in regard to the Old Testament. You're going to take your tradition, your theological term, your framework of how you view the Bible, and you're going to force it onto the text to make it mean something it doesn't mean so that it doesn't violate your view, your, your, your extra-biblical view. I don't have any interest in doing that. I don't have any desire to do that. I want to know what the Bible says, not what somebody in 1843 said. And it's not that people can't contribute and be meaningful, um, but I just don't care. If it, if it isn't scriptural, then we need to change it, okay? I believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. I don't believe uh, that the Council of, of the Synod of Dort or the Reformation or Augustine or uh, Irenaeus, I don't believe any of them were infallible, and I don't think they saw themselves as infallible. In fact, I, I watched a video the other day of somebody talking about... Um, how we have to be careful not to view the Bible through a certain lens. Like, for example, not viewing the Bible through the Westminster Confession or the Nicene Creed, whatever it is. Um, th- those things can be helpful, but we don't view the Bible through them. And somebody in the comments was so against this that they even said creeds are above any personal interpretation. First of all, a creed is a personal interpretation. Okay, just because it was a few people got together and did it doesn't mean it wasn't personal anymore. Second of all, that's exactly the point that the guy in the video was making is that you view these creeds as authoritative above interpretation, above any kind of correction. And as a result, we don't look at them as something helpful that edify the church. We look at it as though the Catholic Church looks at capital T tradition or the papacy or church authority. And I'm not interested in that. I am so confident that Christianity is true and that the Bible is true that I can read and study it objectively and try to figure out what the author was intending to communicate and ultimately what God was intending to communicate. Now let's look at our last passage 
Uh, this is going to be from Jeremiah 33, I believe, from verses 19 through 22. So Jeremiah 33, 19 through 22. He says, uh, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, David my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, in my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Listen to this, verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Notice what Jeremiah is doing here. He's referencing the promise in Genesis 15. But notice instead of stars, like we see in Genesis 15, he's interchanging it with the host of heaven. So he says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So Jeremiah sees no difference uh, between the host of heaven, heavenly host, angelic beings, and the stars. He's comfortable using them interchangeably. Now this promise in Genesis 15 um, about, you know, God speaking to Abraham and telling him that, uh, your descendants would be as the stars of heaven and as the sands, uh, numbered as the sands on the seashore. That actually has a lot of implication here. We're going to cover that another week, probably in two weeks, because we have uh, former Psyche coming on next week, Lord willing. Okay. Uh, but we'll probably cover this in two weeks. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about both the idea of glorification and what's different or similar uh, with the Greek Orthodox view of theosis or deification. And so we want to get into that too. Genesis 15 is going to come into play there. It's going to be significant. But in the meantime, send your questions, any questions you have to information at apologetics.org. We are going to do our regular Q&A on the last Friday of this month. Uh, so get them in before the last Friday of the month, but send them to information at apologetics.org, the last Friday of March, that is. Our other Q&A was already out last week. Uh, and don't forget that if you're in the Tampa area, come out tomorrow. And if you have a question, you can bring it there too. Uh, otherwise, you can just come hang out. You can meet everybody. Uh, it's going to be a good time. So that's going to be at Mosaic Church tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. There's going to be a Q&A panel with a bunch of us on it. Uh, so any question you have, bring it. doesn't matter. Uh, we hope to see you there. But otherwise, have a blessed week. And we'll see you back here next week, Tuesday night on the Universe Next Door.